You're listening to Voice Acting Mastery, episode number 135. Welcome to the Voice Acting Mastery podcast with Crispin Freeman. VoiceActingMastery.com is your place to learn both the skills and the mindset you need to become a professional voice actor, even if you're just getting started. In each episode of this podcast, you'll discover valuable tips, tricks, and insider information to help you portray characters in animation, video games, and beyond. And now here's your host, voice actor Crispin Freeman. Hi there. My name is Crispin Freeman, and I'll be your guide through the world of voice acting. If you'd like to know more about me, feel free to check out my personal website at www.crispinfreeman.com. Welcome to the second part of my interview with theater, on-camera, and voice actress Anjali Bimani. You may know Anjali from her performances on television in the shows Modern Family and Alex Incorporated, as well as her extensive theater experience both regionally and on Broadway. However, for my podcast audience, Anjali is probably most familiar for her voice acting work as Symmetra in the hit game Overwatch. Anjali is not only a talented actor, singer, and dancer, but she also runs a YouTube channel called I Am Fun Size where she shares her life, wisdom, and experience. I was fortunate enough to be a guest on her channel, and I'm honored to have her with me here on the Voice Acting Mastery Podcast. In the previous episode, Anjali and I discussed how she began her study of acting at a very young age. When she discovered that it was possible to pursue acting not just as an artistic hobby, but as a legitimate career path, she studied everything she could and developed her own plan for becoming a professional actress. In this second part of our interview, we talk about the differences between acting on camera and voice acting in front of a microphone. Then we discuss Anjali's singing training and how her experience discovering her own voice applied not only to her ability to sing, but how it helped shape her identity as an actress as well. There was also a time in Anjali's career where she got into some vocal trouble. Her voice was hurting her, and she went to experts to try and figure out what she needed to do to heal and recover. Her journey to vocal wellness, both physically and emotionally, is very inspiring, and I'm eager to share it with you. And now, the feature segment. So how much voiceover work do you do now in comparison to your on-camera and theater work? Um, I, not as much. Mm-hmm. Not, not, I mean, definitely more than I did. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, then I did Fallout 4, the, the um, DLC, and I still do little bits and pieces of things here, and now I'm starting to do animation. But my, my predominant, uh, the focus predominantly in my career right now is television mm-hmm. um, and then theater. Um, I've started doing less theater since I moved to LA, just because there are less, generally less opportunities to do the kind of theater that I'm aiming, that I would be fulfilled by, and that sure. I would want to do. And also because, unfortunately, just with the schedules the way that they are, unless you have an understudy, it's it's not you just can't do it and have a TV career at the same time here, yeah. unless you're just performing, unless you're just doing a play in your hiatus. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the challenges with the Hollywood industry is this notion that you, you sort of have to be on call at a moment's notice, mm-hmm. and if you've got a regular schedule like theater that takes up so much of your time, yeah. they don't have the patience to work around it. No, and they, they just really go, don't. Well, next. And some theaters are very understanding about that. They hire understudies, and they have a clause in the contract, which is the more remunerative employment clause, which means if you come to us and you tell us. You booked a one-day guest star on XYZ show. You can go. We'll put the understudy on. Our blessings. Mm-hmm. Some theaters are able to work that out. Other theaters, just it's either not in their budget or not in their personal MO. Yeah. Or their their business MO. Um, and completely understood, because everybody, everybody wants you to be completely committed to their project. Who wouldn't? Um, so so that's, that's completely understood. But as a result, since I've been in L.A., I've probably done one show a year, one play mm-hmm. a year, and then all TV. And voiceover. So do you approach your voice acting differently than you approach your on-camera and theater? Very little difference. Okay. Very little difference. Um, Obviously, there is a technical difference. Mm -hmm. Because there are certain things that you just can't do with a mic in front of your face that you you can do in the theater. (laughs) Like, when I want (laughs) to scream at the top of my lungs, generally speaking, it doesn't go well. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> your, your drum's bleeding in the control Yeah, room. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, or a poor guy put things there. That's like when we did all the exertions for Overwatch, and I was like, am I hurting anybody? Is this too loud? <laughs> I don't think we have to worry about me being too loud. Um, I think we're fine. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's all... At its core, it's all storytelling. It's just what part of your instrument are you using? Mm -hmm. So when I'm approaching the voiceover work, I remember uh, there are several parts of my instrument no one going to see, no one going to experience. Right. So I really have to be focused on conveying things with my breath, mm -hmm. with my silence, with my plate, with my actual vocal placement, which comes from singing and just doing silly voices around the house. Yeah, that was the next you know? thing I was going to ask: is how, yeah. how much of your singing training do you use as a voice actor? A lot, and a lot as a theater actor, um, just doing plays as well, just in terms of longevity. Because mm -hmm. if you can do eight shows a week and be screaming at the top of your lungs, you're going to be fine when you go in and do that, you know, Call of Duty '94, where you're you're having to scream bark orders at people or whatever yeah. that is. There is no Call of Duty '94. I just threw that out there. Oh, no there. Probably there will probably be. will be, but I'm not saying that I'm in it. I don't get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> don't get me in trouble, guys. Um, but yeah, no, it definitely helps. It helps with placement. It helps with because um, sometimes you'll be doing voices that are really difficult on your vocal instrument. Sure. You know, and because Tell me about it. I know Jesus, well, God. I mean, I just think about you doing Winston. I'm like, I don't know how you do that. So I, I can't even. I get. And then I think about you know Darren DePaul doing Reinhardt, and yeah. Josh just sounds like that. So Roadhog, I'm not so surprised about. But because um, he's got that big, deep, beautiful voice already. That's my see. If I did that all day, I'd be. I'd have no voice. Yeah. But um, and I did have a period of time where I was. I was in trouble with my voice mm. because I had just finished doing The Jungle Book at the Goodman and the Huntington, mm -hmm. and there was a lot of screaming and animal noises and all of that, and sure. I ended up with some swelling and some vocal issues, and I couldn't figure out how to get back into that place of, I was trying everything that the doctors said. Right. Anything and everything that the doctors were listening to, everything they said. Sure. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. I was yeah. trying to, quote unquote, get it right. Yep. Nothing solved it. Finally, I was like, I'm just going to listen to my voice on a daily basis because I've done this before. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've been in shows where I didn't lose my voice. I'm just going to pay more attention and do, like, don't be stupid. Like, drink a lot of water and be smart about very, very basic caretaking. Steam your cords. And, and then I just figured out placement that was good for me. And mm -hmm. still to this day, obviously, if I do stupid things, it'll mess with my cords. But now I'm just a, a, a lot more aware. Yeah. You know, you start to figure out your own stride. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also because n no two human bodies are exactly alike. No two vocal instruments are exactly alike. And the generic information that we get out there will serve you to a point. Mm -hmm. But then, for example, I have a friend, Jason Page, who defies all laws of science. <laughs> like if any voice teacher looked at him, they would think he was straining. They would think this. They would think that. That man can sing for days the highest stuff ages nonstop, gorgeous gorgeous beautiful powerful voice mm -hmm. and i don't think he took a voice lesson a day in his life he just paid attention to his own instrument and sang every day charlie is charlie is paying attention to his vocal instrument right now sorry he's getting antsy speaking of the training where did you get your uh, legit vocal training well i studied at northwestern with okay. a voice teacher there because my minor was in music theater because okay. you know my backup was in music theater <laughs> I'm going to do theater, but for a backup, I'm going to get a degree. I'm going to get a certificate in music theater. That's good thinking. Um, I was really, oh really planning God. there. I was like, I just want all of the things that say I can do my job. Um, so I studied there, and then um, I just went to a variety of different um, private instructors all over. Probably the one, the two that I stuck with the most. In New York, I studied with a man named Peter Van Derrick, who was teaching at... Um, at NYU at the time, and then here in LA, I studied with a man named Calvin Remsberg, mm. who is a legit opera dude, but teaches tons of musical theater people. Nice. And he was very uh, bel canto style sure. teaching. And then I stopped primarily because I was discovering that the way I was belting in his classes was not was not working for me. It felt painful. Not because of what he was teaching me, right. but just because of the direction I was going. And I needed to step back from classes and get back to like, what is my voice? Mm. Rather than waiting for this teacher to tell me what's right. Yeah. Um, and even now, I'm still kind of, I'm a little wary and a little bit like, 
uh, walking on eggshells a little bit as I'm finding finding my own personal voice because again studying for so many years and wanting to be in musical theater there was very much a sense of I want my voice to fit what they want rather than I'm doing this for me this is my voice yeah now I have the luxury of doing that because I have enough of a career that the music stuff is I'm not dependent on it sure. and I'm not dependent on the next music theater gig or the next concert or anything you're okay buddy Charlie wants to sing um, Charlie's a very good singer. I'm sure. Um, but, uh, so now I'm, I'm much more private about it, mm-hmm. about my singing because I'm so like, I got my fists up and I'm like, don't anybody tell me how to do it. I'm going to do it myself. Mm-hmm. And apparently I'm going to sound like Mr. T. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do this my way and I'm going to sound how I want to sound. And, and, and again, my beloved is a, a musician and a producer and he always wants to help. And I'm like, let me do it my way first. And then you can give me information when I tell you. But not yet. Stop talking. And I'll usually do it in that voice so he understands that I'm not yelling at him, but I'm very serious. <laughs> that you're a member of the Rugrats. That I'm, and... a, yes, I'm apparently seven years old. Um, so that, but even that, that sound that I just made right there, mm-hmm. I, I credit my singing training with being able to know where to put that and mm-hmm. being able to slip into it. Yeah. Because I understand nasal resonance versus, you know, feeling it somewhere else versus lowering your larynx to make the sound fuller, or all of those different technical things that you then forget about. Mm-hmm. Once you've spent years and years and years learning them, you're like, oh, that's just another tool. Yeah. That's not quote-unquote right. That's a tool for my toolbox. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, warming up and cooling down, other, other than warming up and cooling down from voice lessons, there's probably nothing else that I really specifically do from my voice lessons mm-hmm. anymore. Well, and I think this is the case with anyone who has any longevity as an artist, is that you eventually have to figure out your own formula for your process. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Especially when you're at the beginning of your career and you're trying, or your study, even if it's not a, a career, even if you're just a student, you're, you're, you're sort of looking at these people who seem to be able to do things that you can't do. Yeah. And so you're looking at them and going, please, master, tell me how you do that. Yes. And of course, the people will tell you, but what they're telling you is their alchemy. Mm-hmm. And you may be able to take elements from it, but if all you do is is slavishly ape or mimic somebody else's process, you're just sort of this faded carbon copy of what they do. You have to take right. it, make it your own, and then you may decide, okay, this is cool, but what if we did that? Right. And then suddenly you find, oh, that really feels better. And you can get really far mimicking and being a carbon copy of someone else. Sure. But it's hard to be extraordinary. You can get really far, you can have a career, but I don't feel like, at least for me, I didn't get into this just to have a career. Right. I got into this because I love doing it and I want to be the best version of me I can be doing it. Mm-hmm. I just didn't quite understand. I didn't understand that precisely what made me not like the people I admired was what would eventually make me unique and extraordinary along the way. You know, Ooh, that it say was. Say that again, what you didn't what, like. That precisely the things I didn't like about myself that, or I didn't see in myself and I saw in people I admired would eventually, could eventually be strong points or things that uh, made me more unique and different than those people. Right. So you're looking at thing at, at, at qualities of yourself that you see as, uh, disadvantages. Right. Or faults or whatever. Right. How can I turn that into a part of what I am? You know, you look at, um, uh, Tommy Toon or Bob Fosse, the you know choreographers, they built their choreography on their own bodies with their own limitations. And yeah. that's why they were such extraordinary vocabularies and extraordinarily physical languages that no one else had taught because they built them on their... You know, Tommy Toon's got this long, crazy long body. Yeah. So, and, and Bob Fosse with his kind of like weird positionings and isolations, everything that they built... Same with Billy, the, the teacher that I had in school. He built his technique on his body mm-hmm. because he'd spent years and years being a dancer trying to force himself to do the thing that other dancers were doing and it wasn't working and he was injured all the time. If you've ever seen the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty about the sort of second renaissance of Disney, this is, you know, after Walt died, Disney got in this sort of strange place where their their films were a little mannered, they were, you know, 
Fox and the Hound, and it mm-hmm. was a little, uh, it didn't have the focus that it had when Walt was alive. But there was this sort of second renaissance when they did Lion King right. and Little Mermaid and things. And so there's this wonderful documentary called Waking Sleeping Beauty, where they're sort of showing how people like John Lasseter and Glenn Keane and Andreas Deja, all these amazing animators, were sort of revitalizing Disney in a new and, and, and fascinating way. And there's this video, I think it was John Laster who took the video with his little handy cam, and he's going through the Disney studio, and all, all these famous Disney animators are waving high and saying mm-hmm. everything. And then he goes to, and there's Tim Burton. <sighs> Tim Burton is sitting there, and he looks miserable oh. because he can't draw like the other guys. He can't draw Mickey like everyone else can draw Mickey. He can't he like he just can't shoehorn himself into the Disney style. It's not it doesn't work. And and it's so funny to see him with this you know sad dog face. Yeah. And and and, and then you realize, "Oh, because He's got his own style. Exactly. He's got to be the thing that he is to the best of his ability. And everyone's going to fall in love with Nightmare right. before Christmas. Right. And, and, and think, well, how did he ever question himself? Well, look at him. He, he looks yeah. like he's about to cry. Yeah. But I feel like that definitely is a rite of passage for all of us as human beings. And again, especially as young people starting out, you don't know what you are and you don't yet know what you love. And you know what feels right or what you, you know, you're, you see spend that time as a young person learning that. So so it's completely understandable to have no idea until you're older. It's just um it's just there is at some point um you know it's funny this is a, such a strange example to use but um I look at Justin Timberlake <laughs> who is arguably in my opinion one of the best performers of his generation if not like all time because he can do kind of anything and and be really good at it mm-hmm. um, and be an awesome human being at the same time like I don't I want to be Justin Timberlake for a day I want to know what it's like to be that like I'm just me and I can do anything look yeah. at this and have a good time but you look at um the beginning of his career there's the boy band thing where they were all trying to fit in and then he breaks off because he's obviously like super talented and he can but then you watch his dance style, and it's so clearly Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. All Michael Jackson. Completely Michael Jackson. And then you see him start to morph into his own thing. Mm-hmm. Because no longer does he need to emulate someone else, to emulate his idol. He figured out the parts of that that worked for him. Mm-hmm. And now he gets to take it and convert it into his own language. Right. So you, of course, you're going to have these inspirations and these people you want to learn from. You know, bass players have James Jamerson and Larry Graham and all of that. But then you got to go on and do your thing. Mm-hmm. And and being able to make that transition from being like someone else to being you, like that's actually kind. I'm kind of in the middle of that right now, and it feels mm. amazing. Mm. You know, I really do feel like it was just the last few years that I've started to really understand that. Um, And part of it, I think, is just, you know, age and maturity. But part of it is also recognizing the difference it has on my acting and recognizing the difference it has on my life. Mm -hmm. Like, this is this is what I got. I can make it the best that it can be, Mm -hmm. but I'm never going to be six feet tall, never going to be blonde. Well, I mean, I might be, but I'd look like the Indian Tina Turner. But like, I I could be, I can, I'm never going to be a, a certain set of other things. Yeah. But I am going to be all of these things. So mm-hmm. what can I do? Yeah. You know, what can I do with it? And that's when it starts getting fun. Mm-hmm. It's like thinking of your money not as, oh, I only have this much money and I, and I, and I can't spend any more versus I have this much money. How do I spend it? Mm-hmm. You know, you can feel the same way about $5. I mean, you can feel two completely different ways about the same amount, $5. Yeah. What can I do with it? Or, oh, I can only do this. Right. You know, it's just a, it's just a mindset and I'm having a lot of fun doing it. And it's, and it's, it's bearing out in a lot of a lot of great ways. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, and and I mean, life is good. Good. Your life is good, and surrounded by really beautiful artistic. Like, if there's one other thing that I think um, that I know has had such a huge difference in my life is in um, the people I spend my time with and the people I allow into my head, mm-hmm. um, because. Sometimes the people that I spend the least amount of time with also happen to be some of my best friends, but they are in my head all the time because they are so, they drop these nuggets of knowledge and confidence and support. And just having good people around who hold the bar high for you, but don't judge you for your failures. But they hold that bar high. They're not just kind of accepting all the time 
no matter what you do, they're like, yeah, you screwed that up. Like, mm. yeah, you sucked at that. So how are we going to do better? Yeah. Like having those people who love you, but expect you to like step up. That's been really, really special too. Yeah. Without well, being, without being negative, which is very easy in this business to find too. You will always find someone to commiserate with about anything. It's very easy to find people who will tell you all the reasons you can't do something. Mm. You find the people who are like, okay, how are we going to do it? Mm. And you found your people. Yeah. That's the difference between uh, a, a main character in a film and an action hero. A main character says, what's wrong? And an action hero says, how do we fix it? Yep. Yeah. That's, that's a great way to look at it. What about a main character who's an action hero? That, well, that's, that's, there you go. That's the action hero. <laughs> so I want to change gears for a little bit yeah. and go back to the sort of beginning. Yes. Because so many of my audience uh, are maybe at the beginning of their voice acting career and they may be curious about those sort of initial steps, both psychologically and in terms of your practice, mm-hmm. how you got started in this. It, it's, it, it sounds from your description that you sort of came out of the womb ready to perform, you know, let's put on a show. <laughs> sort of. I mean, here's the funny thing. I really just, in, in telling you the story of my life, tremendously downplayed academia. Because growing up, it was all about, and not because of my parents, I don't know where I got this, maybe it was because my brother, who is like this amazing, extraordinary, brilliant human being, and I just wanted to be him with long hair. And and so, like, it was, for me, it was all about A-A-A-A-A. He's older, yeah. He's older, yeah. He's older, and he's just just one of the greatest human beings. Four years. Four years old, yeah. So that's an interesting... A difference, right? Like, oh it, yeah, two years you're head butting heads all the time. Four years you're like thick as thieves. Gotcha. Um, he's also though again like, the, I never understood girls being like, I hate my older brother. I'm like, my older brother's dope. Like he takes me play. Well, I didn't say dope back then. I say it now. But he was he would he just took such good care of me and cared so much and would help me with things that I was struggling with and give me advice and tell me tough love things that my parents wouldn't tell me, but mm. in a loving way. Like he's just he's just he's. He's perfection. He's just everything you could ask for in a human, let alone an older brother. But um, I wanted so much to, like, I got to be a good student, like Anish. I got to do this. I got to do this. And so it was the combination of that and my own desire to be loved and to please mm. and to, you know, if I get good grades, it means I'm a good girl. And so. Um, and he wasn't a performer. No. He, I mean, yeah. he played music. He played piano and okay. he played in the band and stuff. But he wasn't, he was by no means going in, and that was never a, a thing that he wanted to do. Um, but uh, I had that, you know, crazy dr- dramatic side, an emotional side. But at the same time, I was so incredibly academically driven, mm. just super, super academically driven, which is why it took all the way to high school to be like, oh, wait, this is actually like a thing that I could do as a li- for a living because I was just focused on classes, 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 classes and in order to get to do the acting I will take these extra classes and do these extra things on the side. So as long as you satisfy the academic expectations uh, that you had internalized from mm-hmm. the ether, who knows, um, that would give you the permission then to yes. pursue the performing, which yes. you were passionate about since first grade, right? I mean, I, I enjoyed doing it. I don't think I recognized again that I was like passionate about per- but I, yeah, no, yeah. Like even book reports, I turned into like four act plays and you should see my Gandhi from sixth grade. I was amazing. <laughs> I did a book report in sixth grade dressed as and speaking like Mahatma Gandhi, complete with bald wig. Like it was a, th- wow. it was a, it was a feat. I still have pictures. Um, see, that <laughs> wasn't my thing. Like I didn't, ah. I didn't have that at all. Wow. I was such a shy child that I, I almost got pushed into the spotlight. Mm. And so the notion of, of being in first grade and getting up in front of people and, and doing, uh, like, that's just not, a, that wasn't a part of my psyche. You know what I think, actually, and this is such a strange thing to recognize now, one of the things that actually served me in that sense was that I was in a predomin- predominantly Caucasian neighborhood, mm-hmm. and I was the only Indian kid at my school. Mm-hmm. So I was automatically other. Mm-hmm. There's two ways that can go. Sure. You can desperately try to fit in, or you can admit that you stand out. Right. And I think I leaned into, at least at that very young age, being like, well, I know on the first day of school she's going to make me pronounce my name in front of everyone, and we're all going to laugh at how badly she does it, so let's make it a thing. 
Right. I know that I'm going to have to go up and, you know, say, because I'm a good reader, I'm going to have to read this thing in front of the class. So let's make it a thing. Let's make it include everybody and enjoyable. So I don't get ostracized for having to read in front of people. Sure. There was this already this sense of, I, I never dealt with prejudice or big prejudice or bigotry. I can remember like maybe one or two times being made fun of as a kid, but who isn't made fun of for some reason? So it didn't mm. feel like an ethnic thing. I don't remember that from my young childhood at all. Mm. It was just accepted that I was other, and that's saying a lot back then. Because you know now it's a little bit better in some ways, a little bit worse. But I mean mm. in, in schools, but um, that sense of I'm already other, so mm. let's use it. I think that actually helped me a lot. Interesting. Um, and I was a big talker. I loved to talk, kind of like I'm doing today. Gotcha. So that helped too. Just any opportunity to get up and talk about things was was really really fun to me. Um, and my parents, again, very encouraging of, let's have this conversation over dinner about politics mm. at age eleven. Let's right. have this conversation. They were very very much wanting to hear what I thought about things and treating me in terms of my opinions and beliefs as an adult. Yes, they treated you, know? you as a thinking human being who exactly. just happened to not quite have as much experience as them. Exactly, and if there was something I didn't know about, we go look it up, you know, something like that. So there was definitely a sense of, I can hang with the big kids, mm -hmm. and I can have a big conversation, and I can get out there in front of people. So all of those things, I think, contributed to the desire to perform. It just ended up morphing into, ooh, I can sing too, and ooh, I can dance too, and this is really fun, and I love it. Um, and, and then... It sound, and because your, your, your parents obviously were, were very focused on uh, academic achievement, mm -hmm. but it also sounds like they had a great appreciation for artistic expression. Absolutely. So the two were not exclusive. No, not at all. I mean, there was definitely a sort of silent understanding that your grades come first. Sure. But that's, I think, just natural in any household uh, with, with parents teaching their kids to be good students. Like, that's that again, that wasn't an Indian thing. That wasn't anything like that. That was yeah. just like, all right, but you're in school, so that's the focus right now. But yeah, you I mean, add all the were, other things. If you're playing basketball, you still got to get good grades. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it was like that. And then, um, and I think seeing how serious I was about acting and seeing that I was good at it, um, gave them a certain level of, you know, solace. So what comfort. is that, that moment you said in high school where, where you had the light bulb where you went, oh my God, this could be a career? I think I started, I started reading a lot of books like Acting Professionally by Robert Cohen and all of these, like I would go to the, I would go to Bookstar or, and, and gosh, buy all of the, you were. and buy all of them because I, I, no one was teaching that. So I had to learn it somewhere. So yeah. I went to the bookstore. So I would read all of these things and read about professional actors, and I'm like, oh, this isn't, not this isn't hard, but, like, I get this. This is a lifestyle, I understand this. This doesn't feel like, oh, my God, how am I going to become a nuclear physicist? This feels like <laughs> I, I can look at this, and I'm like, this is totally, this part of things, the art is, is always in question, like, learning how to be a better actor, that I'm going to be working on for the rest of my life. But this lifestyle, I understand now, how on a day-to-day -day, this can work, I didn't realize that it was a thing. Like, yeah. Yeah, and, and even, you know, through a few of my first professional productions, well, actually pretty much through Metamorphoses in New York, I kept personal training and, um, and I was also like a medical exercise specialist and all these things because I didn't, I didn't understand downtime. I was like, well, why? I, this thing really interests me, and I can help people, and it keeps me busy outside of my auditions, and if I'm doing a show, I don't have to do it, so, Why yeah, not? keep doing it. And that satisfied the academic side of me as I was transitioning into full-time actor, purely full-time acting. Gotcha. So, at some point in high school, because of your own initiative, you're going and you're, you're learning mm -hmm. the... Um, the, the, the business, really. The, the, the business. Yeah, the plumbing. You're learning the plumbing, and you're like, oh, that's how you root the water to make everything work. Yes. It's not magic. No. It's just planning. Now, it was very clear to me, uh, especially in that particular book, in, in Acting Professionally, I remember him saying something. I think it was that book. It might have been another word. It's like, if there's anything else you can do in the world, do it. And I think that's a terrible piece of advice to oh, give to I'm people. I'm so glad you say that. I really I hate the that. Same thing. Because, because the people will say to you, if, if there's anything in the world you think you can be happy doing besides acting, do it. And I'm like, there are a lot of things in the world I can be happy doing besides yeah. acting. 
I can probably make myself happy doing like a good 75% of the things that I can imagine, you know, having to do. Sure. That's just a personality trait. Mm -hmm. That's just like how I like to do life. If I'm going to do something, I'm going to be good at it. And mm -hmm. if I'm not good at it, I'm going to do something else. Yeah. Um, and I'm certainly not going to keep doing it if it makes me unhappy. So, and I also never understood the concept of <laughs> quitting, <laughs> acting. <laughs> like I can quit things. Yeah. But why would I quit? Acting. acting. Yeah. The one time in my life that I, I thought that perhaps I would quit, I know we're way off your your No, no, this is good. The one time was actually a few years ago when I just wasn't getting, for whatever reason, I wasn't getting the auditions. This is just recently. This is very recently. Okay. This is like probably 2014-ish. Sure. Right, right before Overwatch happened. Um, and I was trying everything I, I could. I was doing all the casting director workshops and I was throwing all my money at everything and this and that and every possible like nuts and bolts thing I felt like I could do. Mm -hmm. The whole 90% that I should be doing Versus the 10% that I expect my agents to have to do because that's all they're making. You know, I was doing all of those things. And for whatever reason, the auditions weren't coming. And I took this class with a casting director, a, a, a four-week class. And at the end of the four-week class, I burst into tears and I said, I'm doing the best work of my life and I can't get seen. And I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing all of these things to be able to... And she was like, you don't need to quit. Because I said, I was like, I don't know if I need to quit for the first time in my life. I think I might need to quit. And she said, you don't need to quit. You need to chill out. Yeah. You just need to, for a while here, not be so proactive. You need to stop doing all the workshops. You need to, you know, find something else. And, um, and, uh, and that was at the same time when I talked to my manager. And, and she sat me down. And when I was, we were, we were having lunch together, so we were already sitting down. And... Uh, <laughs> And I told her that I think I want to quit. And she said, you know, some people, I would say, if they were feeling that way, if they needed to take a break, go do it. Do whatever you need to do and decide if you want to come back to acting. You're not allowed to quit. You're too good. Tell me what we need to do to make this okay. Mm. That concept of, I, I don't have to really stop acting. Mm -hmm. And I certainly don't have to stop looking for acting work. I maybe just don't need to stress out about it all the time. Crazy town. Crazy town, right? And you're going to laugh when I tell you what, um, what was ultimately the thing that totally solved this problem for me. Yeah. I started driving for Lyft. Interesting. So I couldn't figure out any kind of side gig fun thing that I wanted to do that would, that just fit all of the, you know, conditions that I wanted it to. And I have a Prius, and I always drive my friends around town, so I was like, I don't like going to bars for social stuff and whatever, and my man was on tour, so we weren't spending, you know, he was away, and I was like, I'm just going to drive other people around in my car. Yeah. And I'm going to turn on an app, and then when I turn it off, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to meet people, and it'll pay for, you know, some groceries or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it was so fun. Wow. And so freeing. Yeah. I was getting to talk with people and have conversations about things all like just crazy. I remember meeting this guy who was a DJ and a, um, a, a neurosurgeon in, in at, uh, or was training to be a neurosurgeon, was studying to be a neurosurgeon. Um, met so many great people and had wonderful conversations. I took a woman on a, like an all day trip because I found out she was coming from Spain and only spoke Spanish and she was all by herself and she was like in her 60s and she was just doing this as a lark because she wanted to get out and experience the world. So I took her all over LA. And like, and, and gave her like a tour in Spanish and everything. Um, yeah. So it was so freeing because I was doing something that made a little money. Yeah. You know, so that, that helped because uh -huh. very rarely can you press a button in the acting world and then shut off a button and be like, I just made some money. Yeah. But you can do that as a Lyft driver yeah. or any one of these, you know, gig economy things. So, um, I did that for like six weeks and my whole mindset changed. Fascinating. Because anytime I was starting to stress out about like, oh, I should be doing this thing. Oh, I should be doing that thing. I'd be like, just turn on the car. Yeah. Just, just do this. Yeah. See, see how that works. And it was, uh, it was a, it just shook things up. It, it reminds me of what they, when they talk about Harrison Ford being a carpenter. Yep. And, and having a place to go. 
so that you're not so precious about every single thing that's coming.、Mm-hmm. One of the best pieces of advice I ever read was、um, I don't know if I read it or I got it, but whatever that I ever got,、um, and I still remember it to this day when I'm planning my auditions is make sure you have something to do after your audition.、Mm-hmm. Make sure you make a plan to go out to lunch with a friend, or work out,、oh, or something.、Good. Yeah, so because not... you will second guess yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also because then the audition just becomes one of those things you're doing that day. Yes. Rather than this is the focus of、right. my entire life for the、right. next twenty four hours or forty eight hours. Right. And I've seen people do that. God, I remember reading in one book where they said you should treat every audition,、uh, putting yourself together for every audition you go on, like you're going to the prom. And I was like, oh my god, if I put that much pressure on myself, I'll like spontaneously combust in the room. Yeah. No, no. It needs to be just like this is part of my day to day. Yeah. Now you know. For it took me a long time to explain this to my mom because she would always ask me about like, oh, how did your auditions go? Or tell me what auditions are going on. I'm like, well, mom, like, I just I don't want to. Not I don't want to, but like, I I don't ask you about like tell me about all forty of the patients you saw today because it's just a matter of course. And I wanted her to think of it the same way.、Mm. She goes to the office and、yeah. sees patients. I go to the office and audition. Yeah, and then ideally speaking, sometime after that, I go to the office and do the job,、right. and that's more fun to talk about. Yeah, but just that that kind of when your job is when so much of your job is auditioning, you kind of want it to be a day to day thing. You want to care about it,、mm-hmm. be passionate about doing your job well, but I can't put that kind of pressure on myself anymore. No, and, like, and a lot of people don't understand that because how often do they interview for jobs? And、mm-hmm. so they take a lot of focus interviewing、oh. for that job. We interview for jobs multiple times a day. Yes, although again, it, it, for most of my career, it was not that many auditions, so I can understand why、yeah. I would put more focus on it. And、well, I'm not, and I am saying most of my career. This is not like I've been booking a ton of work, but it's not because I've had. A million auditions. Yeah, you know, I've 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 been very lucky in terms of my booking ratio, but there will be long periods of time without an audition, and I need to be the person to cultivate whatever I need to cultivate in between those to know that I'm ready for the audition, but I'm not desperate for the audition, and、mm. I've got something to do afterwards. Yeah, you know, that's really good. That's really good because. Yeah, the the not getting precious about it. It it、mm-hmm. it's the thing that、um, you know you were talking about when we were talking about hang on tightly, let go lightly, and not、mm-hmm. worrying about the outcome. It was the thing that I learned from archery because、mm. I was actually I actually taught archery for a while, and archery is an interesting exercise because unlike other exercises that involve a sport or a racket or a you know a sword or、right. something. There's this notion that in order to get the result, you have to exert, right? You have to swing the racket, or swing the sword, or swing the baseball bat. In archery, you have to let go,、mm. right? You、mm-hmm. you put all this effort into the preparation, but then if you sort of jerk to shoot the arrow like you would jerk to swing a sword, you'll totally go wild,、right. wide. You'll totally miss. So in archery, you have to do this thing, and then you have to breathe. And let go,、Oof. and the easier you let go, the straighter the arrow flies. Yeah, and and it and it, it it's it's amazing to me that notion of quiet centeredness, the the peace that it, it's that thing where they say, oh, so and so makes it look so easy.、Mm-hmm. It's because they found that quiet space、mm-hmm. to be able to do it. Now, before that quiet space, are Tears and sweat and blood yeah, and you know everything、yeah. else to build up the skill, the strength, the fortitude, the focus.、Mm-hmm. But when it comes time to do the thing on that level, it takes you. The dance dances、yeah. you, the song sings you, the scene acts you, and and then you don't you don't want to be precious about it because、right. all you're going to do is your ego is just going to squeeze the life out of it. It has and, to be its own thing. And that letting go is is what you're constantly chasing. And great work can be done if you're not in that perfect sweet spot. Sure. It's just when you find that sweet spot, you're like, oh, that's 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 the performance that I loved. I might have seven shows that week where I was completely in my head, but they're still great performances、mm-hmm. to the audience. So I can't take that away from them. Yeah. But when you're chasing those moments of 
just it's right it just it all feels right mm -hmm. and um that that great combination between tension and relaxation um that that is definitely again just learning about you learning about your own instrument your own psyche because your psyche as an actor is your instrument your mm -hmm. brain and your crazy imagination for better or for worse that's your instrument emotional yeah. hygiene is one of the most important things an actor can be good at. I call it emotional hygiene. I don't know what other people call it, but um, yeah, it's it's because your emotions are your currency. Yeah, and if you are afraid that your emotions are going to take you over, if you are not figuring them out in your in your day to day life, then how can you expect it to feel safe to quote unquote go there mm -hmm. when you're performing? There's, I trained uh, a lot with a bunch of actors who worked with uh, the Suzuki company of <laughs> Togomura. Um, and I worked a lot with the Saratoga International Theater Institute. And they told a famous story about Suzuki-san, who was the director of this very, you know, crazy theater troupe in Japan. And they were doing their version of King Lear. And they had a character, and I believe he was playing, uh, he was, I can't remember if he was playing Edmund the Bastard or mm -hmm. Edgar the, his brother, but mm -hmm. he was playing one of those characters. And this actor was notorious. He had... His personal life was the biggest soap opera. There oh, was God. so much drama in his personal life. And then he would get on stage and do these characters, and they sort of came out tepid and bland. Yeah. And Suzuki at one point screamed at him and he said, Your personal life is so dramatic and exciting, and your acting is so flat and boring. Can't you just reverse that? Yes. And honestly, <laughs> there was a point in my own life where I was like, Oh, crap. I was about to say something completely different. Yeah. Um, I now get it. Like, I can use my creative powers for the powers of evil or for the powers of good in yeah. my own life. I'm going to put all the drama on the stage. I'm going to put all the drama in there because I don't, in, I don't actually enjoy it anymore in my, my, my home life. Yeah. I don't actually, I find it unnecessarily tiring. And um, I think as a younger person, I may have craved it. But that's when I didn't realize that, that that was controlling my art, too. And that all of that drama that was getting sucked out of me, then I would go on stage and not be able to give anything. Mm -hmm. You know, rather than, I mean, everybody looks at Meryl Streep and sees how amazing she is. And that woman is so incredibly well-balanced and has a happy family life. And then you look at her on screen doing anything. And she's so vulnerable and she's so present. And um, and that, having having that balance it's not about quote-unquote being happy specifically no i like your term emotional hygiene yeah i just i know that because i am a more emotionally available person in all circumstances i need to be more careful like if i had bad teeth i would need to brush them more often i need to be more careful mm. making sure that i'm taking care of myself emotionally that's part of why um i am fun size my, my series came about because I do have all of these little tricks that I've figured out for myself mm -hmm. that work to help take care of my own heart and help take care of my own psyche. And if any one of those tools happens to help someone, awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, if not, it's no big deal. It's just a tool. Like, it's just a flavor. Try it, don't try it, whatever. But these just these little things where I'm like, for me, this is... This, this is, is what's working. No, and this I, is what's working. And yeah. I share your admiration for master artists in whatever field who are able to go to emotionally dangerous places without hurting themselves. Yes. Because I think what happens is so many people feel, especially when it comes to acting, there's so much mystique around the method actor who mm -hmm. when they step on the set of a film or on the stage or even backstage, they never drop character and if their you know, if their character is crazy they start going crazy. Yeah. And, and there's this fetishization of actors like that as if that's the real thing. Like unless you go out and you actually eat that roach, that cockroach, you're you not really know. acting. Yeah, and 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 I and it's that that classic story about Laurence Olivier mm -hmm. and Dustin Hoffman. Mm -hmm. from I was my, just thinking of the same one uh, yeah. when they were filming Marathon Man, and Dustin Hoffman has to be this marathon runner, and so he stayed up all night and was running, and so he came to set exhausted and sweaty and stinky. And Laurence Olivier looked at him and said, "You know, you could try acting, dear boy." Yes, exactly. And so, and and, and I sh I share that 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 admiration for these actors who are willing to put as much 
they are willing to put themselves artistically in places of extreme crisis, mm -hmm. but not personally, yeah. and that they can make that separation. There's a difference between rocking it out on stage and coming home and not turning your guitar off, right? Yeah. you yeah. got to be able to turn it on and off. And because so many of those, of those performers who don't know how to find that balance burn themselves out. Absolutely. And you see these people, you go, oh my God, they're such brilliant artists. But they can't make their lives work. And, and, and not only are they not enjoying their lives, I don't think, that much, we'll have to say goodbye to them far too soon. Yeah. I do. I mean, I, I think it's, it's definitely individuals. You know, some individuals are more like you look at Julianne Moore and she can be joking up until they say action and then she'll just start crying. Like she's just got that emotional availability, go straight into it. But then she wants to have a life in between. And she said this famously in, in interviews, too. So it's not like I'm letting out some secret. So there are people like that. And then there's some people that do need that. They need a ramp up, you know, and it depends. Oh, yeah. It also depends on the project. Not everybody so, can just do a, a back handspring without right, a warm up. Exactly. They need some. They need some kind of like a safe place. And so, so you know, you need to respect and protect your own process in that way. I also think the the mediums of uh, or the media of um, TV and film, it's much harder in terms of um, knowing when to let down the character if it's something that you need ramping up to get to. Because, for example, when you're doing a play, I know that right around 8 o'clock, we're starting at this point and we're going to that point. Yeah, it's much more regular. The schedule is more yes. regular. Yes. So you have figured out your process during the rehearsal process you and during during the run. You have figured out the journey you have to take both as the actor and as the character. TV, you're shooting out of order. Film, you're shooting out of order. You yeah. don't know how long you're going to be on set. You don't know when they're getting to your scene. You don't know if they're going to get what part of your scene. You don't know if you're going to have to start Write with it. the hardest scene. Yeah, you don't know if you're going to have to start with the hardest scene of the day or switch the scene because of weather or whatever. So that, I think it's much harder for film actors and, and TV actors to be... Um, to take care of themselves that way, which is why I think we hear, you know, so many sad tales about yeah. um, about film and, and television actors who who, or particularly film actors, because once you're on a set, you're on a set. Yeah, and, um, and when you're on a film a set like that, you never know when the spotlight is going to be popped on you and yeah. quick do Hamlet's speech or yeah. be Lady Macbeth, and yeah. you're like, oh, and and it is, it's not. It, 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 <laughs> Dare I say, it's a little bit of a hostile environment for an actor because it can be. you, you yeah, never know it can when be. you're going to be called on to perform, and so you want to always be in the state of readiness. Right. And so, yeah, that's challenging. I do. I mean, I have found again, the, the more I've done it, the more I've been willing to ask for what I think I might need. Yeah. In advance. Um, like if I know there's a particularly emotional scene coming up, I'll talk to the first AD or the second AD and be like, can I, can you guys just give me, it seems like 30 minutes out or whatever. Cause I'm not even going to touch that shit until I get, until I know we're 30 minutes out yeah, or something like that. And then of course you have to deal with whatever actually happens. Mm -hmm. But, um, and there are also directors who are tremendously understanding of, Take all the time you want to get to where you need to get to, because we're gonna we're gonna have the camera on and we're gonna catch it as soon as you get there. Do yeah. what you need to do, but you never know. I mean, there's there's um I feel, and maybe it's because theater is my first language. Um, I certainly feel like I need to have more trust of my um, TV, film, and voiceover directors than I do of my theater director, mm. because when I'm doing theater. I kind of have a pretty good sense of like, okay, like I see the big picture around me. I see all the actors around me. I am seeing sort of a mirror image-ish of what the audience is seeing. So I know what this looks like. And theater is an actor's medium. Yeah. But, eventually the director has to hand the reins over to the actors. Right. But I, I also know what the finished product is going to look like mm -hmm. on every night and whatever, essentially. Yeah. Essentially. When I'm doing TV, I don't know what the edit is. I right. don't know what they. I don't necessarily know what exactly. The, I know what the shot is, but are, are you know? But when we're doing voiceover, I don't know what they're necessarily hearing in the booth if I'm on cans or not. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's a tremendous amount of trust put in the production crew and the and the creative team. Yeah. That I don't necessarily feel like. I absolutely have to have. I would. I love to have it with my theater directors because it just makes it so much more fun, and then I have to do less work you know, putting on my director hat or whatever yeah. while I'm acting. But, um, but yeah, I, I, the, the trust level needs to be high in order for it not to feel like a hostile environment. Yeah. 
I love Anjali's term emotional hygiene. It's a very useful term to describe an emotional mindset that I've always felt was important for an actor to develop if they wanted to have longevity in their career. Unlike most traditional jobs, an actor must tap into their own emotional life in order to apply their artistry. While a doctor, lawyer, or banker would probably rather go to work happy than upset, their jobs don't usually require them to put themselves into emotionally dangerous states in order to do their jobs effectively. In fact, such traditional professionals are often expected to assume a calm and even-tempered attitude while at work. We as actors, however, are often called upon to put ourselves in emotional danger on a regular basis. We might need to cry out in pain on an operating table, scream in anger on the battlefield, or weep with sorrow at the loss of a loved one, all in the same recording session. Delving into those deep feelings and portraying them believably requires both courage and emotional hygiene. If you throw yourself into these titanic emotional states without the confidence that afterwards you can calm yourself and come back to a safer, more relaxed emotional state, then acting becomes like diving into really deep waters without having adequate swimming skills. You can feel like you're drowning emotionally. It is no fun to work yourself into an emotional frenzy for a character, only to find yourself without a lifeline back to being yourself. Acting can often bring up subjects that might trouble or disturb you. The character you're playing might be going through challenges or stressful situations that could echo similar experiences in your own personal history. If so, then it's vitally important to try to make some sort of emotional peace with these experiences so that you can play pretend as a character without reviving past traumas. Your mind often cannot tell the difference between something you vividly imagine and something you actually experience. So if you're going to play pretend in dangerous emotional waters, it's important to make sure that you won't feel overwhelmed. Do whatever you need to to address your feelings in a safe and responsible way so that you can approach any acting situation with confidence. Next time, in the third and final part of our interview, Anjali shares with us her advice for aspiring voice actors. She also talks about what inspired her to start her I Am Fun Size series of videos on YouTube. So much of what she wants to share with her fans and fellow artists is about how each of us can be more ourselves and find happiness and satisfaction along the way. I look forward to sharing more of Anjali's insights with you in the next episode. If you're enjoying the interview so far, as always, I invite you to leave any thoughts, thank yous, or questions as a comment on this episode's blog post at voiceactingmastery.com. I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Until next time, I wish you all the best in your voice acting endeavors. Take care. You've been listening to the Voice Acting Mastery Podcast with Crispin Freeman. To get your free report revealing the five most common mistakes to avoid in voice acting, point your web browser to www.freevoiceactinggift.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.